if you look at incarceration, most people that are incarcerated have either mental health problems or addiction problems. So essentially what we're doing is we're criminalizing poverty, we're criminalizing mental health, and we're criminalizing addiction. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Lee Owens, the executive director of the Penn Franchise Project, which is seeking to build power and create voters, active citizens, and leaders among communities disenfranchised by the criminal justice system. Lee has a very meaningful story to tell about how he overcame his own year in prison and moved on to a productive life and political career. I asked him about why he started Penn Franchise and how that's going. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Lee Owens with Penn Franchise. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Lee. Hey, Nathaniel. How are you? I'm good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Lee Owens. I am a father of two wonderful teenagers. Uh, I am the executive director of the Penn Franchise Project, which is a Pennsylvania-based organization that works to build political power in communities that have been negatively impacted by the criminal justice system. And I've been doing this work for, I think I've probably been doing this work for about 20 years, post-incarceration. Post your own incarceration. That's right. That's right. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in West Philly in various neighborhoods. We moved around a little bit. Uh, you know, we started off in the Overbrook section of West Philly, where my parents bought their first home. And then about a decade later, that didn't work out, and we ended up in Southwest, um, not so great neighborhood uh, where there was a lot of, at the time, a lot of gun violence going on. A lot of the JBM, the Junior Black Mafia crews at the time were really raining high, and uh, it was just a lot of chaos in that neighborhood. Uh, we only stayed there for about a year, and then we moved back to um West Philly proper um, in what they call the university city section. And so um, that's kind of where we stabilized. And I really like grew up in, in terms of like going through adolescence and my teenage years, I did it in, in university city. What did your parents do? Uh, so my mother was a, a beautician. She owned a couple of beauty salons at certain intervals uh, in, in, in our lives. At one point, she had a basement salon. Then she got a, a her own uh, brick and mortar, not too far from where we lived. 
Uh, then a few few years later, she got another one. There was a time where you know she had a lot of sort of uh, you know high, I won't say high profile, but like high powered clientele. My father was a salesman. Uh, he sold different things from time to time. I remember at one point he was selling mausoleums for Rolling Green Memorial Park. Yeah, I think he did insurance for a while. But yeah, he was a salesman by trade. What kind of student were you? I was very uh, astute, but also very um, goofy and and awkward. So I, I did okay. I didn't. I think what one of the things my teachers would probably agree on is that I had a lot of potential. At the time, I didn't use it. I grew up in a time where, in the eighties and nineties, where like if you were like if you were a smart guy, that meant that you got challenged. You know, you got bullied. Uh, and, and being, being smart and being even remotely different was not the thing to be, you know? And so I think a lot of us, you know, particularly folks that I keep in contact with to this day that I remember from those times, I know that a lot of us downplayed who we were academically in order to fit into the common commonality was amongst us, which was to be either silly, athletic, or tough, you know, and so since I wasn't tough, I was kind of athletic. I played a little basketball, but I think overall I was an okay student. But I, I think that there were a lot of times where I fell into the um, to the traps of of trying to fit in, and that caused a lot of trouble for me over the years. You know, anyone who describes himself as astute and goofy, I don't know, that endears me immediately because I, you know, I. I kind of feel some commonality with that myself. It's a great self-description. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you. You did go off to college, correct? For, for a little while. Um, I stayed local. I went to Drexel University for about two semesters uh, before I dropped out and got incarcerated. Majored in creative writing, film and video production. Um, was one of several students to break into this new screenwriting program being headed up by Ian Abrams from California. He was a showrunner for a lot of popular 90s sitcoms, I think. He was the dean of this new creative writing, dramatic writing, uh, film and video production program that I was uh, in the first cohort of. Um, So yeah, Drexel University was, from where I live, it was a 30-minute walk. Um, at a ten, uh, less than a 10 minute drive from where I, I, I lived, but I decided uh, nonetheless to, to move to uh, Drexel's campus. So I, I suspect you've probably told this story before a few times, but what kind of trouble did you get yourself into? <laughs> it's so interesting because I had managed to grow up in and around West Philadelphia, uh, Southwest Philadelphia, and, you know, had managed not to get in trouble as a teenager. My first time getting in trouble was as a college student in New York City, nonetheless. So a bunch of friends, you know, that I had met while I was a, a Drexel student, we all decided that, you know, going back and forth to New York to buy drugs, mostly weed, but, you know, at times, you know, folks that, that came with us wanted to you know, uh, grab harder, harder things. But at the time I was carrying a gun and it was something that, um, you know, I, at the time, you know, I think for a 19 year old, you don't quite understand the gravity of what you're doing. I think, um, particularly like in American culture, being a gun carrying person does not necessarily mean that you're 
attempting to be a dangerous person, but it's how Americans tend to defend themselves or feel, you know, safe, particularly in a space where you're in the midst of a lot of violence and a lot of turmoil. And so for me, like I had been robbed at gunpoint and I think making the decision to to carry a weapon for me was, was solely, you know, based on self-protection, which I know for a lot of people it is. Obviously that is what I served my, my time for on Rikers Island for illegal possession of a firearm, ended up serving a year on Rikers. But I think, you know, had I really understood the gravity of what I was doing, I may have made a, a, a different decision if I had understood how serious it was. Yeah, I, I remember a couple of years ago talking to a, a young woman who's a criminal defense attorney in New Orleans who had a lot of clients who were teenagers who carried guns in the city. And the penalties were extremely harsh, especially for second or third offenses. I mean, like you could take your whole life away, essentially, by making that mistake. But she and she was telling me, like, these these young men did not feel safe in their world without them. And then the penalty when if they got caught was so high. And, you know, she, I, mean, she, I remember her referring to them as her babies because they were not fully mature adults thinking about the consequences of their actions entirely, but they were paying prices that that were just so hard for her to see. How long had you been carrying a weapon before you were caught with it? Probably for about a year. I was still living at home. I had left campus um, and I was back home. I was working um, two jobs. I was coming home late at night from a restaurant job at 2 a.m. walking through West Philly. I would say about a year into me carrying it is when I got caught. And, you know, the mistake, I think, more than anything was was traveling across county lines to a place that I didn't understand how strict New York, New York was on gun violations at the time. That was the biggest sort of shock for me, which is being in a, in a uh, for me, a foreign place and getting in all, all of this trouble, not even home, you know? So it was, it's quite a thing. I, I know the kind of feeling of the chill kind of running down your spine when you face danger and danger or fear has got to be totally associated with being caught and incarcerated, losing your freedom. It's unimaginably scary to me and being, I assume, locked up with people who aren't always making the best choices if they're in there too. Can you just tell me a little bit about, about that time, like being caught facing the criminal justice system, how your family responded to it, the time there. Just tell that story a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it was a terrifying time for myself, uh, for my family. I have two younger brothers. It tore them apart, ripped my mother apart. And, you know, we fought the case. We fought the case for about a good seven seven months. I had posted bonds, so I was reporting to a bail bondsman once a week, I believe, if I remember correctly. And I was traveling back and forth to New York City to appear in court, which, by the way, I always like to mention that I had the same judge as Puff Daddy did during his gun trial in 2001, which I always thought was very interesting because not that I ever saw him leaving court, but apparently this judge was pretty tough on this kind of thing. So I thought it was interesting we had the same same judge. But my 
mother was extremely supportive, driving me back and forth to New York to make these appearances, making sure that I reported to the bail bondsman because I was still at the time, you know, not not really understanding the gravity of what I had gotten myself into and not calling the bail bondsman on time. You know, there was a point where they were about to send out the bounty hunters because they didn't know where I was. And, you know, it was at the time I was dealing with an insurmountable amount of shock trauma, you know, and um, there had been a series of events, you know, post being robbed at gunpoint, I would say those following few years that led to those moments, but it all culminated in, you know, really me almost making things worse during a time where I was trying to get out of trouble, trying to not have to serve jail time, hoping that I could get five years probation maybe or something to that effect. But it ended up being a year on Rikers and and possibly if I had taken it to trial and, you know, tried to, you know, prove that I was a good kid and that I was, you know, just had made a mistake uh, and had lost, I could have done five to seven years in upstate, right? So for me, it was like, do I risk this or do I just bite the bullet here and do the year? But making the choice to give up my freedom was one of the hardest things I had I've, I've ever done, and I was a baby. You know, I look at my my children. My my daughter's nineteen, my son is fifteen. You know, and to me, they're babies. You know, and I can't imagine them having to work through the criminal justice system almost by themselves because my family didn't know how to navigate that. I had a public defender. We weren't uh, affluent enough to you know raise the money to hire a real a real attorney, right? Someone that was going to be able to devote time to the case and play it down to the point where, you know, I'm, I possibly wouldn't have had to do jail time. You know, particularly given my credentials at the time, you know, Drexel, I had been to Africa and Italy as a documentary filmmaker for a youth organization at the time. I had been chosen one out of dozens of Philadelphia area high school students to be a uh, a uh, Fox News intern for five years at a media careers for minorities program. So my credentials were there. Um, And I think in retrospect, you know, had I fought the case, had I, you know, really uh, presented myself for who I was, I think that it would have benefited me given my unique circumstances. But again, we just didn't, we didn't have that knowledge at the time. We didn't have the money uh, to make that happen. But it was a learning experience for me. Being in Rikers was, it was one of the craziest points of my life, you know, just being thrown into a cage and and what I like to call the lion's den, you know, it was a mixed bag, right? There were folks there that, you know, to this day that I had the utmost respect for because a lot of them I know were victims of poverty victims of over-policing, victims of trauma that all ended up incarcerated on the surface for making bad decisions. But it's a lot more nuanced than that. So my experience in, in Rikers was probably a unique situation. And part of it is because I went into it kind of already being an advocate, already being an activist, you know, which is something that I literally am making a career out of, but I was that back then. Um, I just didn't realize it. I would say my experience was that I made a lot of friends. You know, I made friends that were able to 
give me credibility um, and to to even to an extent keep me from falling into the pitfalls that occur even inside of those those jail walls, right? And so I was very blessed in that because I was able to use my gifts. You know, I was extremely well read by then at nineteen. I brought in a, a crap ton of books that I was giving out to folks. I was literally leading actions against the correctional officers for, you know, various things that they were doing that they shouldn't have been doing to the point where it almost got me in trouble, like physically harmed. The folks at Rikers respected that. And I felt like for me, like I would rather be on the side of the the other residents and show them that the, the power that they have, um, even though we all have made mistakes that we're not trash, we're not the the poop at the bottom of someone's shoe, even though we're here. And that's what you're made to feel like you are on Rikers Island. And so I think what kept me safe and what kept me from, you know, I was a skinny kid. Like I wasn't a tough guy, right? And so I had to have something else to offer. And I, I think that I nailed it. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, you know, to this day, it manifests itself in various, in various spaces that I'm in, in the criminal justice reform space, in the democracy space. And so seeing, in retrospect, seeing small examples of that advocacy spirit, even back then, fascinates me, but it also kept me alive on Rikers. It's just something amazing to contemplate honestly like you to take an, an experience that just has to have been horrible on many fronts and at least make the most of it and kind of develop your leadership skills that says an awful lot about you that you kind of nailed it in that way as you put it how would you say it changed you up until Rikers, I was much more of a laid back kind of guy, very jovial. I had to learn not to smile so much on Rikers. I had to learn how to not be so jovial, how not to be so friendly, how to balance out my my natural sort of personality for like something a little darker. In a lot of ways, it was grit, right? And it was it was something that, you know, was all around me growing up, but something that I'd never embraced just because I just, I didn't have to at the time. And I, I just didn't want to. But on Rikers, I would say there was a certain level of darkness I did have to embrace and I did have to get very comfortable with um, because it was just a very dark place. So I will say like post-Rikers, um, that does still follow me to this day where, no, I'm not as jovial as I probably used to be. And part of that is probably age too and experience and you, you become desensitized and, you know, you become a bit cynical about things, about life. But certainly Rikers, I think, sped up that, that process and it, it's easy to be cynical about life and be cynical about politics, be cynical about leadership when you've experienced Rikers Island. For the millions of people that have gone in and out of Rikers that, you know, in, in places like Rikers that don't engage in the electoral process, don't 
engage in the issues that matter to our population and, and, you know, to the progressive movement as a whole, I think that those are the people that, you know, Penn Franchise is trying to reach so that the thing that happened to me and, and the, the, the fact that I had to sort of change a negative into a positive, I want to recreate that for other people that have been through what I've been through and much worse, right? Much worse. Because again, you know, my experience was unique and I didn't have to go through a lot of what I saw other people go through, which was at times terrible. And so I know that people have horror stories. When you come home, uh, there's a lot of, of work to be done to get your life back on track, whether it be emotionally, whether it be physically, whether it be, you know, uh, socially, career-wise, whatever. Um, Penn Franchise is an organization that wants to, to use that experience, right, to sort of transform other people's lives that are going through that. So it's like an each one teach one thing. And the more of us get involved, the more of us have the power to sort of shape um, state-level politics, uh, county-level politics, to make it so that while we know we can't change the fact that there are so many prisons, so many jails, when we can, we can, it's something that we want to work on. But while sort of working in the parameters of what is here, we want to make the conditions uh, different. We want to end solitary confinement. You know, we want to end life without parole. There's a lot of work to be done within the confines of the system, but then there's the abolitionist work. That that is really the overarching theme, right? Which says that like policing prisons really have no place in our society. They don't keep us safer. So why do we have them? Because it's capitalism, and it's sort of the the the, the protection of the caste system that exists in this country. There's two sides of of this of this criminal justice reform. But again, Penn Franchise is an organization that sort of is bridging the gap between the abolitionist movement, the criminal justice reform movement, the democracy and voting rights and elections movement as well. These are worlds that don't typically talk to each other, but our organization is is being the sort of uh, conduit to bring bring these worlds together to get these, these things done. And I'll say that um, our flagship campaign uh, to make, to give you more context is a vote in jail campaign. We're seeking to create a, a policy and a infrastructure around voting in county jails throughout Pennsylvania. So it is legal, right? You can, you are legally allowed to vote if you're awaiting pretrial, if you're serving time for a misdemeanor, you can vote, you can do an absentee ballot, but the infrastructure doesn't exist. So people just don't do it. The education is not there. People don't think that they can. So we're currently working on a city ordinance that we're trying to get passed in counties throughout Pennsylvania, as well as a statewide legislative measure to unify, uniform the process throughout every county. So we're working a county by county strategy, as well as a, a statewide legislative strategy to implement these policies. It's a super important thing that you're working on. And with your permission, I want to still go a little bit more through your biography and get to that in more detail. Could you tell me about the day you got out and the path that you took uh, to get back into the workforce and the decision about not going back to college? Tell me about like how it was how it was to re-enter the world. It was it was a different world for me at the time. So I've had two children, 
which were some of the happiest days of my life, their births. Um, you know, I've had a lot of high points in my life, a lot of great moments. But to this day, I don't think I've experienced the amount of joy I felt the day I came home. And that is like 20 years later, like to this day, I, I'll still shed a tear because it was it was the, the happiest day of my life. <laughs> I remember getting on the Rikers Island bus and as we were crossing the bridge to freedom, a song by Ludacris was playing called Roll Out, Roll Out, Roll Out. And it was so spot on because I was literally rolling out of Rikers. And I thought that that was a, a positive omen for me that day. But it was, again, a unique experience because I had to get to Philly. Like they dropped you off at Queens Plaza uh, in, in, in New York. And, you know, I had to find my way from there, hopped in a cab. You know, went to Penn Station, got on the train, got on the 30th Street Station, went to see my girlfriend at the time first, who was a, a, still a college student on Drexel's campus. Then she went to class and, you know, hopped on the train and went home. And I knocked on the door and there's my mom, you know, crying, you know, because uh, I had I had survived and, you know, I was in one piece. And despite the 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 dark moments and, you know, all of the uncertainty, it was over finally that part of it anyway. Pretty cool that your girlfriend stuck by you. Yeah. 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 No, she did. She is the mother of my daughter. We're great co-parents. Um, in fact, <laughs> we talked a couple of days ago about those times back at Drexel. And it's funny because my daughter, even to this day, she found out, I think I posted a picture of myself on Rikers, uh, the only picture I have of my, me on Rikers, and with the the year of the picture. And my daughter goes, wow, you guys had me a year later. And she's like, how would you guys feel if I dated someone that had just gotten out of Rikers <laughs> and had a child with him? And we were like, absolutely not. <laughs> so it's, it's, just, it's, it's fascinating. So what was your first job post that? I had two jobs, actually, um, actually three. So I was doing customer service. I was doing like collections. I was calling people and trying to get them to pay their bills, their outstanding debt. I was working in a seafood restaurant that my cousin owned, and I was interning at a hyper local television station, hip, hip hop television station that I love. I wasn't getting paid, but whenever a hip hop artist or R&B artist came to Philly for a concert, um, we got to interview them and we got to, you know, go into the nightclubs that they were at and hang out with them. And, you know, for someone that just got home from Rikers, it was pretty freaking cool uh, to be able to do that, even though I had to carry this 300 pound camera around everywhere. But yeah, those are my, my three jobs out of Rikers. I mean, you know, I, I was, again, I was very blessed to the extent that like I had the restaurant job. I had, you know, the internship with the TV station that my cousin that owns the restaurant hooked me up with, in fact. So I had a lot of great support. But like when I compare like for me at that time, comparing it to where I had been freshly home from Africa and Italy, having done this, you know, film project, you know, having done the Fox internship, being at Drexel, I was a failure, <laughs> you know, like I was. I had really fallen from grace, you know, so for the typical person coming out of Rikers, I may have been like in an okay spot, maybe, I guess, I don't know, but nowhere near where I wanted to be. 
you know, it forced me to change my whole trajectory. And it forced me to use who I now was, which is a member of this sort of fraternity of people, formerly incarcerated people, but it forced me to embrace that and to use that as a mechanism for survival. And the way to do that is to give back to that community, to give back to that population um, so that less of us have to go through it. So less of us have to be handicapped with that sort of scarlet letter felony that you know, can cripple you, can keep you from getting employment, can, you know, keep you from being able to go back to college and get financial aid, right? Keep you from getting a barber's license in some states. Being a part of this population now, for me, it meant that I had to use my gifts, my talents, whoever I was, to give back to that community. And that was the way I saw that I could not only give back and not only redeem myself and help other people, but essentially be a success. Because at the end of the day, that's 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 all I've really ever wanted was to be successful at something. I know that you built a career, was in politics and journalism and union movement. Can you tell me about how you entered that space and, and navigated it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, so after having done several odd jobs for years, I stumbled on a job at an organization called Solutions for Progress in Philadelphia. And their flagship project was a project called the Benefit Bank. And the Benefit Bank was a computer program. It was a website, really. And it allowed individuals to apply for all sorts of social service programs like food stamps, you know, Medicaid. And it also allowed you to file your income taxes all for free. So you could do all of this in one stop, one website. If you came, say, in June to do your taxes, you come three months later to get your food stamp application done, and they had your information saved in it. So they would just plug into Compass and file your application along. So the Benefit Bank was a really cool program, and it was in place to address poverty and to make these benefits more available to people in rural areas. So we would travel across the state with a mobile clinic with like laptops, a hotspot, and we would apply people for these programs, poor people, you know, elderly people, people that didn't have access to the internet, and we would bring the services to them. So that was like my first sort of real job post Rikers. I think that was around 2006. Well, okay, let me backtrack for a minute. I apologize. That was my first job back in Philadelphia. But I have to say that after Rikers Island, about two years later, I moved to New York City. And I forget this sometimes because I'm so freaking old. I moved back to New York City to work for an organization called the Osborne Association that was at the helm of a program called the Fresh Start Program, which was a Rikers Island-based program that I was a participant in while I was on Rikers Island for a few months that um, literally taught you one of two tracks computer journalism or culinary arts. And so I was a part of the computer journalism track and we published the Rikers Review, which was a collection, uh, anthology of prison writings that we released every quarter. And we published that. The culinary students catered our graduation. Um, So you graduated. We got to have our family come to the graduation. We got extended visits. It was very interesting program, very unique program. I became the program assistant for that program 
two years after I came home from Rutgers. So I moved to New York and took this job, moved to Queens and began the pathway of, of trying to um, help people. And this was after the TV program, after the TV gig, after the restaurant gig, um, I got off of this position to move to New York for that program. So I did that for about a year and I got promoted to case manager, which is awesome because I had no experience, but it was a new program that they were piloting called the Ride Program, the Rikers Island. But essentially what we would do was we would start the process of re-entry 90 days before the release of someone from Rikers. Once they came home, they had a discharge plan. You would take them to their program, whether it be rehabilitation, whether it be uh, a halfway house, we would take them there and we would retain them for 90 days to try and keep them on track. But it was very high volume. I had a huge client, um, I had a huge caseload. I was very inexperienced at the, at the work, but it allowed me to, to meet a lot of people in the, the New York criminal justice reform space that Although I didn't stay in the space long, although I'm back in the space now, um, that have helped me to this day navigate Penn Franchise. But I just had to backtrack and make sure that I mentioned that um, early on, I did have that experience and I ended up getting fired from the Osborne Association after being there for about two and a half years. Again, I was extremely young and experienced and they needed, they needed someone that was a little bit more experienced at case management. But that, I think, sort of set off my career. Um, to be able to get the job with the Benefit Bank, to be able to do that work. Uh, the work with the Benefit Bank, uh, because the CEO of that organization was so politically connected, it put me in a position to start meeting a lot of elected officials. In 2007, I started doing petitions for judicial candidates. I also did a policy paper for Shaka Fatah's mayoral campaign on criminal justice reform in 2007. So those were like both like volunteer gigs, but it was the start of like my political career. And then in 2008, it was my big break. The Obama campaign hired me as a field organizer in Philadelphia. So I did that. That was probably, that was a really cool experience. Probably one of the hardest experiences of my life because I was a new organizer and they were hiring at such a a high rate. They were hiring so many people um, and the training was limited. So it was a lot of like learning how to navigate this stuff on your own and sort of working with local organizers to be able to build coalitions to help you, you know, get through the the process and, and meet your numbers and, you know, get your voter registrations, get your volunteers signed up and, you know, have your events. So I did that. And then, you know, after that, um, you know, really the rest is history. I, I, I got to work for a lot of very interesting candidates running for office, for various offices. Um, I actually worked for one elected official uh, for a time, uh, I believe in 2009 until 2011. I worked for a state representative as the chief of staff. Again, like I had this unique ability to get jobs that I wasn't really qualified for. They became like the bricks that built the, the house that is Penn Franchise because I couldn't have Penn Franchise without the political capital that I've been able to build, right? And so like all of the experiences, both good and bad, sort of, you know, brought me to this point. And I'll say they all culminated with the Krasner campaign in 2017. Tell me about that campaign. That's Philadelphia prosecutor. What was he? Yes. Yes. That That's right. That's the uh, Philadelphia district attorney. Yeah. A reform district attorney, right? Yeah. 
That's exactly right. Larry is the most progressive district attorney in the country. He was a defense attorney, a civil rights attorney for 25 years, 30 years. He had 75 cases against police officers over his 30-year career. He was the, the activist's lawyer, right? And so when he decided to run for district attorney, by default, he was going to be the reformist candidate. And really, his platform was so spot on and so timely I literally went out of my way to join his campaign. It was really fate that made it happen because I actively pursued it after having not ever wanted to work for another candidate ever again. Ended up getting in as a as an organizer with the Real Justice Pack, headed up by Becky Bond and Sean King. Um, Becky Bond was an advisor to Bernie Sanders on the digital side, and Sean King is, you know, Sean King. But they started this Real Justice Pack and you know, where they get pro- progressive prosecutors elected throughout the country. And Larry was like their first real like project. And so I got hired through them for the primary, which was a, a field of, I think, seven Democrats vying for this nomination. Uh, Larry was the last one to join the race and he won in a landslide. After the primary, I was promoted to deputy campaign manager. After the campaign, I went into the district attorney's office as the director of community engagement. I did that for about a year and I left the district attorney's office because being in city government is a lot different than politics, right? Like city government is not, it sh- it's not political. It's not, it shouldn't be political, but it is, but it's, it's a very, uh, a very unique animal. I didn't like it. Can I ask you one question about sort of the politics of criminal justice reform and these reform district attorneys and, and other prosecutors? There's some conventional wisdom developing that there's blowback now because of the San Francisco election, because of the right wing attacks on defund the police slogan, things like that. What is your take on the politics of reforming criminal justice broadly right now? There's a lot of advisors to Democrats who are saying you got to be real careful about this. It can really cost you. There's some uptick in crime, perhaps. People start to push towards that tough on crime mantra that comes and goes, but often uh, carries a lot of political weight. Where are you on that? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's exactly right. That's a great question. I think it's complicated, right? I don't think it's as, as cut and dry as, say, for example, defund or on the other side of that coin is like, you know, let's let's have even more police. I'll give you an example. So the South Street shooting that occurred a month or so ago, maybe two months ago in Philadelphia, there had been talk of, of the fact that, right, like the solution to things like that, you know, South Street being the, one of the most popular corridors in Philadelphia, and for a shooting like that to happen, like we must need to have more police presence, right? But the reality is that like, South Street is one of the most policed corridors in the city. There are multiple police officers on every corner on South Street, and there are police officers on the corner where the incident occurred. So to say that the solution was more police, right, I I personally take issue with that. But that's not to say that we're not living in times where, like, it is hard to feel safe, right? Like... In Philadelphia, for example, and, and in particular, uh, we've seen such a, an uptick in gun violence over the last two years that 
it's really hard to make a case for defund the police in a culture where people are getting shot every day just standing outside of their homes. Elderly women are scared to walk to the store, right? So it is a nuanced conversation. And one of the things that I always try and highlight is you have to always sort of look at the history and 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 understand how history plays a part in the in the present and in the future. So for one thing, I think that we have to look at the the pandemic. We have to look at how uh, the pandemic sort of exacerbated an already fragile sort of peace percent, so to speak, in urban communities, right? Um, and it was fragile because there was already extreme poverty. They had already closed more than 50 schools over the last 10 years, public schools, right? Social services have been on the decline, cutbacks at an all-time high. The situation was already sort of ripe for what's been happening, but the pandemic made it 10 times worse. So when we saw small businesses shut down, we saw people losing their jobs, when we saw sort of this, you know, sort of apocalyptic atmosphere rise, that was only exemplified even more in the areas where we now see upticks in gun violence. So we can't we can't look at the uptick in gun violence without, and I'm not saying right that you know we have to find a bad guy, we have to find something to blame, which we do. But I think one of the things that we do have to look at is are the social conditions and sort of the systemic conditions steeped in institutional racism um, and sort of anti-worker economics, right, that have literally set the stage for these sorts of, of things, right? And we see it on the other side with like even the January 6th insurrection, right? We see like that was a symptom of not just Trumpism, but you know, a sentiment in that particular community that they felt unheard and they're living in poverty too, right? They're living in conditions that set the stage for that kind of sentiment, not to justify what, what they did. Although a lot of those, a lot of those people were upper middle class people, you know, uh, I'm sure that- No, that's true. I mean, I think a lot of the Trump voters for sure are not doing well and for systemic reasons, like you indicate, rural poverty and urban poverty share a lot in common. Absolutely. And I think one of the, the, the best things that the, the so-called elite has done ha- is, is to peg, you know, for example, poor black people against poor white people to create this sentiment that distracts, distracts us from the real problem, which is, you know, corporate greed and, and anti-worker capitalism. If rural poor people and urban poor people came together and built political power around the, the issues that matter to all of us, which are really simple, which is that we want education for our children, we want a, a, a fair wage to be able to t- raise our families and maybe take a vacation every year, maybe. We're not asking for a lot, and but the reality is that we're all asking for pretty much the same thing. We're just blaming each other for why we don't have it, right? And so... Um, I think that if we can work on the issues that we have in common and focus on that, we'll see that the real problem is not not poor people and other poor people. The problem is corporate greed. Well, I hear some of your language and I wonder how much it was 
formed during the time you spent in the labor movement, which I guess came next. You were at the SEIU. How did you land there and what did you learn there? So SEIU um, recruited me uh, and I, I was at the district attorney's office at the time and I had kind of put it out there with a few select folks that I was looking to make a move. <laughs> and so um, I think word got to SEIU, they were looking for a legislative director. And I think that what they were looking for at the time was someone that may not have necessarily had the lobbying experience, but someone that had the organizing experience that they could teach how to lobby so they can bring the sort of organizing way, so to speak, to lobbying, if that makes sense. They saw that I had a tremendous amount of organizing experience in the political and advocacy space. And I felt like well, it'll probably be easy to teach this guy how to lobby, which I don't know if, if, if they would say that to say that now. But my experience with SEIU was, uh, was amazing. SEIU funded the Penn Franchise Project for its first six months. I'm still sort of working with them to the extent that like, you know, we're, we're working to, uh, to address, you know, the anti-worker sentiment that we know also addresses poverty, also addresses systemic racism, these sort of issues that we have in common. Right. And so I think at the core of the civil rights movement, um, you know, if Dr. King were allowed today to talk about it, I think he will point to the labor movement as the sort of the center of all of these various other counter movements. I think labor is the the glue that that binds those movements together for a lot of reasons. For one thing, everybody needs a job, right? Everybody, everybody deserves the basic capacity to work, be able to work, the dignity that comes with work and the dignity that comes with being able to provide for your yourself and your family, right? And so that's the core of like what the civil rights movement was asking for, right? Fair wages, anti-discrimination, pay me the same thing you pay somebody that's that's white, right? Even with the, the women's movement saying the same thing, pay me the same thing you pay, to pay a man, right? So like when you look at all of these various sort of struggles for equality, I think the thing that they have in common is that the labor movement sort of centers them because the labor movement touches the election, sort of touches the candidates, touches the issues, touches the advocates. I thought it was only natural for like labor to be a part of my career. The work that I did with SCIU was very, um, very steeped in, in civil rights and racial justice, believe it or not. Um, it was something that I went into it asking to be able to do. So when I took the job, it was like, all right, I know that they're going to allow me to be able to sort of bring these issues into the fold and connect them to the labor movement in a way that they historically have have always been connected. But if someone that you know doesn't know that and doesn't share that sentiment isn't doing the work, they're not going to make that a priority. They're not going to make sure labor is at the center of the struggle for racial justice, the struggle for criminal justice reform. But I think labor should always be at the center of those movements for various reasons that I mentioned and more. So what is the founding story for Penn Franchise? You you said a little bit that you got some help from your uh, former employer. Why did you leave and how did you get this going? Yeah, so everybody told me I was crazy for leaving a wonderful job at SCIU. 
and starting an organization where I was to be the executive director and uh, army of one for a time. I've since hired a director of organizing, Jenna Henry, who's amazing. I saw a, a void, right? I saw a void with the lack of engagement from political candidates, from democracy organizations that were knocking doors. I felt like they weren't talking specifically to returning citizens and to folks that are incarcerated that can vote. And I thought that that was a voting block that was being completely ignored and that if cultivated, had the power through the issues that they care about, that we care about, to shape Pennsylvania politics. And so, you know, seeing that void, you know, I put together a plan and I started talking about it. I started talking about it to the political directors at the locals. I started talking about it to the executive director of the state council. I got to say that, you know, SEIU, you know, they were very supportive from the beginning uh, because most jobs want you to stay. I've been in so many jobs throughout my career where like, you know, they're selfish and in, in, to the extent that like they would rather keep you with them than see you grow and to see you really like reach your full potential as a leader. That's another th- reason why I wanted to start Penn Franchise because we're not just trying to get people to vote. We're not just trying to get people to engage in electoral politics and engage in advocacy to change the law, so to speak. But we're trying to create leaders. We're trying to create formerly incarcerated leaders so that they can be campaign managers, be digital directors, be legislative assistants, be legislative directors, right? Like take these jobs that I've had throughout my career. We train up enough of them, you know, to take these jobs. It's only natural that they begin to shape how we talk about criminal justice reform how we talk about policing, how we talk about defund. You know, 20 years ago, we wouldn't be talking about legalizing weed, right? But we got there, right? So I I think that there's still a lot of space and a lot of room for progress. I just think that we have to get our people in the right places to be able to talk about it and to be able to talk about it to the people that matter and can do something about it. It is very difficult and challenging to get a new organization going, even if you have six months of funding from your previous one. It requires uh, all the skills of entrepreneurship that starting a business does, that starting a nonprofit does. What, What have you learned now that you've been going at this for a little while about getting an enterprise moving? Yeah, I think one of the things that I've learned is that I have to sell myself more than pen franchise. I'm learning how to do that. I'm learning how to sell my story, my progress, and my personal narrative. I'm learning how to sell that um, to the funders um, better because while, while pen franchise is a great idea, I think that one of the things that will be important to highlight is why pen franchise came about, which is literally because of my personal story making sure that people don't have to go through 15 years of, you know, on and off again, working for six months, then not working for another six months, but people that are formerly incarcerated can do what I did and do it better. 
you know, do it more consistently and take it to another level. That is really what it's um, what it's all about is um, is building a generation of leaders and people that'll take this stuff to another level. So what stage would you say you're at? Like, what have you accomplished so far? You said you'd hired an organizer. You, you've raised some money. What's next? Where are you going? What are the plans? So, yes, we hired a director of organizing. We had a really successful fundraiser last week hosted by leader Joanna McClinton and Senator Sharif Street. We got a city ordinance passed about a month ago in Center County, PA, which will implement our policies, our vote in jail policies in their county jail. And we think now that we've been able to do that, that it'll make it a little easier to take the show on the road and implement it in other counties. Next for us is taking that policy to Philadelphia County, to Allegheny County, Lehigh, Luzerne, and Lackawanna, and probably Lancaster, uh, and Delco, pardon me. So those are the next targeted counties where we want to take this ordinance. We're working on campaigns to end solitary confinement in county jails. Can you tell me a little bit about the numbers? Because when I've looked at sort of voting of eligible people in prisons, from what I've seen, it's just vanishingly small percentage. The numbers out of Florida after they uh, got former felons the right to vote, and but then the, the state legislature kind of did everything they could to undercut that by forcing people to pay fines before they would vote and you couldn't even find the information about it. It's like 50,000 over of over a, a million people who should have been eligible actually, despite the work of a lot of organizations, actually got the vote. Like there's a lot more than just getting the right or focusing on a population to to get from an ordinance to organizing those people to exercise their power. What do you see as the numbers and the challenges? So in Pennsylvania, there are about 30,000 individuals eligible in county jails to vote and probably a lot more. I, I don't have the data on the state prisons, but given how close Pennsylvania is, that's a significant that's like that could make the difference in a Senate in a U.S. Senate race or a governor's race. And we have incredibly and potentially tight races coming up right now. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, 30,000 will make or break a, 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 an election. Absolutely. We don't just want to focus on people voting, but we want to we we want to focus on the education piece, which which really discusses why this is important. Why should you be doing this? Why should you care? Particularly if you're incarcerated, why should you care about a system that seemingly has never cared about you? And I think the answer to that is that, you know, there is a direct correlation between the reason why a lot of us have been incarcerated and the people that are elected to elected office, whether it be judges, whether it be prosecutors, right, whether it be school board presidents and and members, council members. I like to say that all voting is local. Because when you get people to understand how much more local elections and local politics means and matters than, say, presidential elections um, and how they directly impact an individual's life, right? If a person that was unfairly sentenced by a judge, if you could vote that judge out of office, you would do that. 
But the problem is that a lot of folks, they don't see the correlation between the elected officials, the electoral process, and their current situation and everything that led up to that current situation. So I think a lot of the work is to do education on why this matters, you know, and if, uh, you know, you elect the right prosecutors, you don't go to jail because you didn't have an ID and they want to get you for trespassing. You don't go to jail for small amounts of marijuana. You don't go to jail for even in some cases like shooting up heroin, right? Like that's a, that's a health problem. Why are we putting people in jail, uh, in prison, subjecting them to solitary confinement because they have a drug problem? We're literally creating criminals. We're creating a culture of criminality because we're institutionalizing people that otherwise might harm themselves, but they're not harming anybody else. You know, you might be a drug addict, but some people clean up. Some people get clean. If you look at the police violence that occurs against unarmed Black people, you'll see the video and you'll see, you know, the person, the victim, the detainee, like kind of like, you know, not, doesn't look like they're really like, submitting, trying to run or whatever. A lot of that is mental health. Like you'll find that most of those police calls that end in murder, most of those stops, you're dealing with people that have mental health problems. If you look at incarceration, most people that are incarcerated have either mental health problems or addiction problems. So essentially what we're doing is we're criminalizing poverty, we're criminalizing mental health, and we're criminalizing addiction. And as a result of criminalizing those things, we're institutionalizing people that are coming home unable to function in normal society that are going to create real crimes, that are going to continue to to find themselves a lot of times in and out of institutions because they've been institutionalized. When you're taking on some like, you know, very challenging, multi-layered societal problems versus focusing on one aspect of it, like the voting in prison, although one can see how you knit them together, how are you making that call about like when you pitch for donors or when you hire or when you focus your own energy of the organization, how do you think about what do I tackle first? It's just very daunting to fix what you know, governments are trying to fix that have billions of dollars that organizers of nonprofits are trying to fix. Like, how do you make sure that you're doing what is doable for a small organization at first? What we look for are the quick wins. We look for what we can get accomplished like right now to get us momentum and to get the ball rolling. You know, for us, like Center County was an easy county to get a city ordinance passed because our director of organizing lives there and she uh, is very connected to the prison administrator who is also a council member. So once we sent them our language to the ordinance, they looked at it and was like, this is great. We'll vote on this at our next meeting. And they voted on it unanimously. And the warden even approved it, right? So yeah, so I think for us, like, Getting these ordinances passed is something that's tangible in a way it's low-hanging fruit, but it's it's actually very impactful. And then from there, it allows us to bring in other organizations because really the name of the game is coalition building. So it allows us to bring in other trusted organizations to say, you be the organization that goes in and actually does the registering. 
that actually does the education on why we should be doing this. I think Penn Franchise is uniquely equipped to deal with the political side, the lobbying side, and the advocacy side, and making it so the policies and procedures are there. And then that's, again, when we go in um, our county-by-county strategy, right, to organizations that live in those counties, that operate in those counties, to say, you be the organization that does the actual groundwork, but Penn Franchise is the organization that wants that that is going to change the the law, change the landscape, the political landscape to allow for these sorts of things to happen. What's the big vision for you? It always takes a fair amount of time to build something like this. Sure. Yeah, I would like to see Penn Franchise go national. I would like to see Penn Franchise being an organization, you know, steeped in democracy, criminal justice reform, do this similar work in other states where, um, you know, where there is high incarceration rates um, and low voter turnout, particularly swing states where, you know, Pennsylvania is a purple state. It could go either way. Right. Particularly other states like that, where, you know, 30 to 50,000 uh, incarcerated folks that are eligible to vote could make or break an election. Places like Michigan, right, I think is is one um, for starters. But uh, yeah, I would like to take the show on the road. I would like to go national. I would like to be known as the person that brought democracy and mainstream democracy to the other side of prison walls. I can't think of a better sentence on which to kind of go towards the end here. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? Wow. No, I think, I don't think so. I mean, this has been great. I, I think you ha- you helped me think about things that I haven't thought about in a very long time. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what, what you're referring to particularly, but I find your story inspiring and important and your work valuable from what I can tell. And so I'm really glad to have had the chance to talk to you about it. Is there anything else you want to say? Well, just that, you know, we hope to be able to continue to do this work. If you want to learn more about what Penn Franchise does, or if you want to connect with us, just visit us online at www.penfranchiseproject.org and reach out to us. I hope people will do that. That was Lee Owens. He's at penfranchise.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.